Section 25 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Joe Bergen. The Heirloom by T. Duffy Lyle. The Grave, but where's the dead? When the echoes of all these strange circumstances reached, as they did, Mr. Lumley's ears, as he vegetated in the enjoyment of his late summer holiday at the select watering-place of Burlington-on-Sea, it induced him to cut short his period of quietude and repose, and the exemptions and relaxations from the calls of his profession, and the consultations over the broad acres and narrow legal details and other interests of his aristocratic client hell, and against his will and not to the mollification of his temper to return to the heated summer atmosphere of town. Of course, when all the reports came to him, through Dr. Sirius Wells, from the latter's transatlantic cousin and confrere, Colonel van der Mullen, that Bertram Gonault, instead of being dead and buried in England or Wales, was in the firm conviction of the American detective a living and active existence in New York. Of course, the great conveying thing lawyer superciliously and loftily pooh-poohed and faw-fawed a great deal of the superfluous breath out of his important and portly body, and as to the idea of Bertram Gonault being among the smaller minority of the living, instead of having been unceremoniously sent over to the great majority of the dead, he laughed the very idea to scorn. Of course he did. But when, a few days afterwards, Colonel van der Mullen had moved his London quarters from the uncomfortably close atmosphere of Craven Street Charing Cross to the somewhat fresher and cooler vicinity between St. John's Wood and the Edgware Road, and the lawyer had arrived in town, van der Mullen not only introduced himself and interviewed the great conveyancer for the first time, at Mr. Lumley's office near Lincoln's Inn Fields, and expressed to him his firm conviction, founded on his own ocular testimony, that Bertram Gonault, whose foul murder he was asked to investigate professionally, was not only alive, and by himself had been seen and spoken to in New York, but was now alive and probably pretty well, and at that very moment, under the close and unremitting espionage of himself or his agents in London, Mr. Lumley had no more doubt left in him, but that this New Yorker, uh, Dutchman, Knickerbocker, or whatever he was, thus the lawyer contemptuously spoke of him, whom Dr. Sirius Wells had brought into the investigation of the Vernwood tragedy, was no more nor less than a hopeless monomaniac. Mad! And there very nearly happened at Mr. Lumley's, that which very nearly happened on the top-floor landing at Dr. Sirius Wells, namely, for giving sensible Englishmen credit for being such fools. Colonel van der Mullen came very near to being kicked downstairs. But Mr. Lumley's professional etiquette restrained him from this violence, as he would have said, absolutely, and in due time Mr. Lumley learnt that he had reckoned without quite knowing his host. Mr. Lumley was an Englishman and a gentleman, whatever that word may mean, a gentleman bred, reared, educated and taught, not in the rough and ready ways of American life, where men in everything 
go the nearest way to work, but among the higher grades of English social and patrician society, and he did not quite recognise that there was fully as much cute sense in the head of the practised detective of New York as there was in all his own formal, legal, long-winded phraseology, couched in all the verbal pomposity of choirs and reams of foolscap and brief. No, in due time, Colonel van der Mulen quite satisfied Mr. Lumley that he was not a monomaniac, that his head was screwed on quite as it should be, and that he was very far from being mad. But however much he might despise the American in his heart, the lawyer had too much professional caution not to do all that in him lay to soothe the troubled waters and smooth the passage between this van der Mulen and Dr. Sirius Wells. Therefore, however frigid its atmosphere, Mr. Lumley stepped into the gulf of cool waters which divided the two men asunder. And however much the volcanoes and slumbering subterraneous fires of difference or jealousy might be smouldering underneath, Mr. Lumley succeeded in veneering and varnishing over the breach, so that between the two there came to be no volcanic eruption, no open declaration of war. Mr. Lumley, although a good lawyer, was a confirmed conservative. A British Tory of the old and biased section of the old British Tory school. That it should be so was inevitable, almost, from the connection of his profession, for his connections were almost exclusively of that class, among which the future is less a dream than the glorious historic past. If he was not absolutely of patrician birth, there mingled in the blood which coursed through his veins very much of patrician pride. In the wisdom of his own conceit, Mr. Lumley felt confident and secure. That he should be outwitted, outfooled, outdone by a Yankee was a thing in the which he had no belief. One thing Mr. Lumley, when he came back to town, strenuously vowed, it shouldn't take him many days to convert this American importation into the case. If his ocular testimony could convince him that Bertram Gonault was alive, perhaps the same ocular testimony would convince him that he was dead. Verily, he would show this man how absurdly he was in the wrong. And now, leaving the New York detective in the enjoyment of his own opinion and theory, and Mr. Lumley chuckling to himself that he will put this theory to the test, we will again shift the scenes. At Vernwood, up among the tall beech trees on the hilltop, where they waved their gaunt lean heads in the breezes, and where the yew trees lent their shadows, where a long unbroken silence seemed to reign, and where the snowdrops and the daffodils reared their modest lowly heads, and the avenues of cypress seemed like sombre sentinels to stand by the portals of the dead, and the sere brown leaves lay scattered on the ground, here stood, in solemn solitude and silence, the mausoleum set apart for the internment and resting place of the bodies of those men who from generation to generation bore the, there at least, honoured name of Gunnalt. Here, in the centre of a circular enclosure, surrounded by a tall paling of massive ironwork in what is termed a ring fence, a perfect circle in form, stood a temple, or fane, or freestone, 
surmounted by a plain dome, which had generations before, like as indeed had the whole burying place, been erected at the cost and direction of someone who at least had the thought for a future home, some long dead and gone gunalt. Thus, between the fane which stood in its centre and the enclosed circle of land was, on every side of the former, a broad level space of turfed and consecrated ground. The Campo Santo of Vernwood, where might rest, let us hope in peace, the bodies and bones of the honoured of their race. But this Campo Santo, this space of holy earth, although many bodies might have been laid therein, was nearly or quite devoid of graves. Beneath the ground level of the chapel, however, and accessible only by an entrance down a flight of steps in its rear, was an extensive underground vaulted hall or chamber. And here, in numerous niches in the sides of the spacious chamber, some empty, some tenanted, are enclosed in marble sarcophagi, the sculpture on which was more or less inartistic or more or less ornate, here were deposited the coffins and remains of many generations of various sizes and ages, and of both sexes of the dead. Such was the resting place which one of his family, many of whose descendants rested within those dark silent walls, had thought well to erect for the tenancy of the successive generations of his race. But perhaps by the unwillingness of any one of the succeeding masters of Vernwood, either to disturb the resting dead, or perchance to be himself reminded too forcibly of his own ultimate fate, the whole place, its surroundings and vicinity, had fallen into a condition of pitiable neglect, dilapidation and decay. In the Campo Santo, or graveyard, surrounding the chapel, the grass untended grew rank and wild and high, while in the edifice of the mausoleum itself, on every side, great blocks of freestone were becoming loosened and detached by the great fissures in the building, and by reason of frost and neglect were fallen or falling from the external walls. While inside the mortuary chapel itself, and still more in the vaulted chamber in which the dead lay underneath, the hand of time and years of neglect had played havoc with this now doubly desolated resting place of the dead. Unhealthy vapours arose to pollute the air. In great drops, the damp trickled down the moss-grown internal walls, while the bat and the owl, the toad and the slow-worm, hung upon the rafters, or nightly hooted weird unearthly music, or crawled or writhed or wriggled upon the slimy, slippery and loathsome floor, a place that was neither endurable to the living or wholesome even for the dead. And generation after generation had been permitted to run more completely to rack and ruin and decay. Even Bertram Gonalt, during his reign, where money was as plenteous as the blocks of ore and spar which he excavated from his mines, which he had opened in those bleak, barren-looking Vernwood hills, even Bertram Gonalt, who reformed and repaired everything else on which he could find an outlet for the lavishment of his easily gotten gold, even he had given the place a wide berth, or perhaps, with an attack of that procrastination which had been so fatal, had put it off to another and another and a more convenient and indefinite day. And so this was its condition, when after the last owner of Vernwood's death, Mr. Lumley inspected this horrid, unhealthy catacomb, 
with the view of finding a meet resting place for poor Bertram's remains. But Mr. Lumley perceived at once that this foul charnel den, the abode of the bat, the owl and the slowworm, and the lizard, pervaded with and breeding pestilential air, was a place neither for the living or the occupation even of the dead. The chapel and the vault underneath it were unfit even for the reception of a corpse. And so, to overcome the emergency, and to procure, if even only a temporary descent and healthful resting place for the remains near his own ancestry and kin, of the last owner and master of the estate, Mr. Lumley had caused the Campo Santo between the chapel and the high iron palings to be cleared of its wild overgrowth of rank grass and uncomely weeds, and there, into a common earth grave, they had lowered the coffin of Bertram Gonaut. As soon, however, as the High Court of Chancery had placed in the hands of the respectable lawyer the power and discretion to manage the Vernwood property, the complete renovation of the mausoleum with a view to giving a permanent and worthy resting place to Bertrand's remains was one of the first things which occupied Mr. Lumley's mind. And with that remarkable celerity with which money can make the mare go, a posse of workmen and mechanics quickly transformed and metamorphosed the whole aspect of the place. This process of renovation was now complete. The chapel externally and internally, and the vaulted chamber beneath, had been cleared and cleansed. The bats and the owls and the toads had been driven forth, beautiful, nay, almost rebuilt, and in the vaulted chamber a new and costly sarcophagus awaited, the transposal and reception of the late Bertram's remains. Before, however, the temporary grave could be legally reopened, or the coffin with its occupant exhumed and removed, an order of permit from the English Secretary of State was required by law. This permit Mr. Lumley had already procured, and now all was only waiting his written order to proceed. This rather lengthy explanation has been necessary to show what Mr. Lumley meant when, amid a setting of somewhat strong language, he vowed he would convince Mr. Vandermeulen how absurdly he was in the wrong. If they could show the unbelieving Yankee the coffin and the grave, he thought that would be quite enough to convince him that Bertram Gonault was in his coffin, and not alive either in London or New York. Thus far had matters gone. The permit of the Secretary of State had been procured, and now only the actual work of ceremony of removal of the coffin and body remained. Then Mr. Lumley, not thinking that his own presence was absolutely necessary, at the disinterment and removal of the remains, had sent orders to Mr. Price, the managing agent on the estate, to have in readiness a gang of workmen, and be prepared for the removal of the coffin containing the body of Bertram Gonault on a particular date. On the previous evening, he dispatched Dr. Sirius Wells with Colonel Vandermeulen to arrive at Vernwood and be present when the actual removal of the body took place. The two private detectives accordingly left London, passed the night in the hotel of a country town within easy distance of the Vernwood estate, and the next morning continued their journey and met Mr. Price, who was accompanied by his men, and all proceeded up the hilly road to where the now cleansed and renovated and beautiful building of the mausoleum stood, 
in the midst of the grove of tall beech-trees. The summer had not, on the whole, been one of intensely blazing heat, and the earliest winds of approaching autumn had spread upon the ground a sparsely variegated carpet-bed of brown and yellow leaves. They had littered the consecrated ground, and falling thickly over the spot where so few short months before, in a few feet of earth, they had laid all that remained of Bertram Gonoth. Arrived within the paled enclosure, the workmen proceeded to the spot. They lifted and laid aside the green squares of velvet turf, which so fresh and green, and alas, so soon grows over what is left of us all. They dug down and down into the loose and pulverous mould where they thought their late master had been laid. And there they found... What? They found a tenantless grave. End of section 25